Womanjika, haramai. Welcome to Voices of Regen, a place for unapologetically bold conversations about regenerative business. Call Claire Wild, I'm Claire Wild, and today I'm joining from the lands of the Wurundjeri people. At Voices of Regen, we reckon that knowing whose land you're on is a really important part of regenerative business. It helps us to connect with the places that we work in, including the local cultures, communities, and ecosystems. Today, I'm here with my co-host, Matt, and we're joined by two very progressive leaders from the investing world, and we're really excited to have a quite bold discussion about investment today. So over the past few years, we've seen a huge shift in the investment sector with words like ethical, responsible, and impact being thrown around a lot. Essentially, this means that society is placing far more attention to where investors, like superannuation funds and banks, are putting their money and whether these investments are having a positive or negative impact on people and the planet. And so today our guests are Alex Hannant and Jackson Rowland um, and we're going to be understanding a little bit more about the new trends that are really transforming the investment landscape. So Alex Hannant is a professor of practice at the UNA Centre at Griffith, Griffith University. The centre leads the university's work in impact innovation, and Alex is currently grappling with systems approaches to innovation, investment, and governance. Impressively, Alex also serves as co-chair of B-Lab Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand, and he's the deputy chair of Social Enterprise Australia. So a pretty impressive CV um, you've got there, Alex. And Jackson Rowland um, is our second guest, and he's spent the best part of the last decade building impact investing in Aotearoa New Zealand, including launching Aotearoa's first impact investing fund. He's now living in New York City as part of the Obama Scholars Program, where he's hoping to figure out what is the best way to accelerate investors saving the world. So some bold aspirations and bold thinking um, from both Alex and Jackson joining us today. Um, so that's a probably enough of me talking. Now I'd really love to hand over to Alex and Jackson and um, hear a little bit more about yourselves and also a bit more about what regeneration symbolizes to you. So maybe Alex, I'll throw to you first. Yeah, thanks, Claire, and thanks for um, uh, having me on. Um, so a bit about myself. I, I mean, basically, I'm a generalist who's fallen up the stairs in the work that I've, I've done around the change agenda. Um, but I, I suppose, you know, kind of a guiding sort of question that's um, sort of to turn on my work is like, how do we facilitate change which is going to last? Um, and so that's taken me through working in um, international development to um, returning to Aotearoa New Zealand and, and working with Jackson and many others, um, particularly sort of in the impact enterprise space which um, sort of led into a lot of sort of ecosystem building. So not just supporting individual ventures, but how to create conditions for, you know, kind of a whole um, sort of movement of, of new enterprise models to, to take shape. And then more recently, actually the last five years, working um, at Griffith University. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we've got a, a small engaged research center, although we do do professional development and, and, and teaching and learning as well. But we've really, come to understand our work in terms of how through what we do in terms of creating knowledge and building capability support transitions to regenerative futures and um, increasingly we, we take a really explicit systems lens on that so not just around ind individual interventions but how do we actually create the conditions for the natural interconnected nature of things to align towards kind of preferred and possible futures and um, you know, find ways to innovate to get there. Oh, you also asked me about what does regeneration mean to me? Um, actually, I'm going to give you an example of when it really dropped for me. I think that's a better way of putting it. Um, and when I was, I, was, I was supporting a climate leadership program in the Indian Himalaya, and one of the participants was a biologist, and she was using her skills and capabilities to come up with a new strain of bamboo to stop erosion. Um, you know, sort of in those sort of, you know, particularly in those sort of community areas, but those landscapes. But what I loved was she was a biologist who then thought about through the plantation of new bamboo, what's the financing angle that we might be able to generate revenues from carbon capture 
through that kind of habitat restoration. And then also how do we use sort of bamboo as a um, resource for community to develop new livelihoods and products. And what I really loved about that was through sort of an intentional act, sort of working with these various systems we have, environmental, economic, social, um, for something which was building capacity in the system to determine its own uh, own destiny. Um, so that that for me sort of really gave me a lot of inspiration. And I think that still holds for how I see regeneration. Oh, that's so cool, Alex. And I think definitely that concept of uh, blending those different types of positive impact, like looking at things from the social and the economic and the environmental landscape or lens is something that is such a strong thread that comes through when we have these discussions about regeneration. Jackson, I'd love to hand to you now and to hear a little bit more about yourself and your work and also, um, you know, maybe an experience in your life that really symbolizes regeneration to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, kia ora koutou. Uh, thank you very much, Claire and, and Matt, for having us here today. I'm also really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Call Jackson Tokuingawa. Uh, my name is Jackson. I grew up down in Nelson in New Zealand. Very, very proud to be from New Zealand and have lived there my whole life and, until quite recently when I moved to New York City. Uh, most of my working life was spent in Auckland, uh, uh, working with Akita Foundation out there. So as part of that work, I was leading the impact inv impact investing work we were doing there, where we were trying to build impact investing in New Zealand. Uh, and that's part of my passion, I guess, for try trying to enable sustainable finance more generally and really help that, that ecosystem grow. And that is what's led me here to New York at the moment, where I'm working with the on, on a program with the Obama Foundation to better understand sustainable finance and how we can use that to really improve the world and, and keep growing the sector. Um, thinking about the regeneration point, I was thinking about it after, Claire, you first got in touch. And the memory that stands out to me is quite simple, but I think, as Alex mentioned, kind of it's similar for me around when the penny dropped, if you like, for regeneration. It actually goes right back to when I was young at preschool. One of the earliest memories I have is um, cicada shells or, or the exoskeletons that cicadas leave on trees, et cetera, around the place. And I really vividly remember a number of these shells on this one tree outside my preschool. At the time, I was obviously, you know, pretty pretty interested in them and, and you know, I'd collect them and, and told myself these stories that they'd grow on, go, go on and become ginormous cicadas and leave more shells around, et cetera. And it was just a fascination. But it wasn't until later on when I realized that actually that, that, that shell, you know, is part of a very small part of that cicada's life that it lives above the ground and actually kind of 90% of its life is, is under the ground in a phase that we just don't see at all. Uh, and that got me thinking about regeneration more generally, right, and the very small part that we often see in so many of these cycles throughout nature. And that became quite a humbling thought when you realize that actually what we see, what we influence, what we know is, is actually such a small part of this broader regenerative cycle. And it's, it's quite humbling to realize that, I think. We're diving in and love both of the stories that you've shared because they, they make these concepts uh, relatable for people. And it's something that you know, we, we really want to lean into where there's uh, examples uh, that can make these systems level conversations that are sometimes quite inaccessible to, to make them yeah more down to earth. So I just really appreciate um, the spirit of how you're you're both carrying into this and also just acknowledging country, acknowledging that I'm coming from Boonarong and, and Boomerang country just outside of Nam Melbourne uh, today. I guess to, to create a little bridge into diving into this conversation further for regeneration projects, uh, we've become involved in some conversations between organisations like the International Ranger Federation, the Thing Green Lion Foundation, the Universal Ranger Support Alliance through the Ranger Roundtable, and, and also their intersection with, uh, I guess, bodies like the UN uh, Environment Program, UN Development Program, World Bank, Global Environment Facility, these types of organisations that are involved with, uh, I guess, the way that energy and, and investment is moved around at national and regional scales. And I guess trying to connect that with some of those people and organizations that are closest to the ground. So I guess uh, one of the things that, that comes up and Alex, you, you hit it on the head when you were talking about that systems uh, focus and we talk about this series being focused on market conditions for impact. 
Um, it really is beyond individual sectors, beyond individuals or individual organizations that can enable that lasting change. So when we then come to this, this trend and the, and the shifts that we're starting to see in the investment sector, I guess the question becomes, why do you think these changes are happening? Like what are, what are the pressures, what are the forces, what are the incentives that are enabling this shift? So Alex, I'm going to come back to you uh, first on this one. Um, yeah, Matt, I mean, I think there's such a confluence of different forces, pressures, incentives, which are shifting the dynamics of, of capital flows. And I mean, I sometimes think about like the bell curve, you know, in terms of how we kind of shift where that that sort of, you know, the bulk of um, finance is, is, is being allocated to. And clearly the things which are pushing the bell curve, I'd say, is a lot around risk. Um, so, you know, a fairly sort of cold-blooded, um, you know, kind of rationale that we need to start putting capital in things which are going to be viable, acceptable, and, uh, you know, and essentially going to sort of de deliver some kind of financial returns over the longer term. And then I think there's pull factors which are um, sort of around the opportunities of disruptive innovation, the change of the way sort of markets are happening. You know, we've had carbon markets for a while, but I think it's sort of how we get broader uh, sort of, you know, sort of market arrangements, which kind of um, uh, value different aspects of the world around us, you know, will be a really rich um, space for innovation over, over the next, you know, sort of um, decade, 20, 30 years. And clearly in that pull as well, the attitudes are changing. Um, you know, so just in terms of, you know, sort of what people are expecting from who they work for, who they buy for, um, you know, the things that they sort of want to do in their, their own spaces and communities. Um, so I think it's a, con a confluence of things. And in some ways, it's probably not too important to get sort of sort of caught up in you know kind of the merits of the individual drivers but sort of to recognize that they are complementary and you know i i think the direction of um you know sort of the of, of travel is really encouraging the, the last thing i would say is we often think about in our work um using the three horizons framework as well you know in terms of thinking about what's the preferred you know possible and you know future over the longer term and where are we now and then what are the, the bridging things which get us there i think a lot of what we're seeing around sort of esg and even impact investment are kind of like part of that horizon too they're shifting us from where we are to where we want to go but um there's also a bit of a risk there that that horizon too can be co-opted by the status quo and doesn't actually kind of shift as fast as it needs to to that preferred and possible future so i think the trajectories are good but we've also got to make sure that we're not just kind of you know repeating the system we already have and these things that you know have the potential for, for transformation yeah i think that distinction that we are often navigating in in these conversations is that in in the way that we describe it is that kind of beyond sustainability transition where sustainability is we describe as being kind of the less harm uh, approach, whereas the re regenerative is then trying to shift the mindset from being a compliance orientation or, you know, a risk management into that innovation and opportunity space. I'd love to just um, stick with you for a, a moment here. Um, you mentioned the different dynamics that are, are happening. and I'm wondering if you're seeing any patterns in the... Um, I guess the groups of people, the types of people that are playing in those different spaces. So something that we see in our work is that you've got this younger generation, and I'm and I'm generalizing, but just younger generation that have grown up, have got that foundation of sustainability through their university and early career. Um, and now they've just got that as a baseline. So now they're looking at these different purpose-driven business models and impact models. Um, and that's also influencing the way that they act and shape other parts of their life as well. Whereas you've got perhaps a more established generation or established organisations that are, you know, they're, uh, they're kind of still trying to navigate this sustainability lens and it's maybe that more risk management compliance focus. But I'm just curious whether these that delineation between the generations or even between the different types of organisations is something in the way that you're 
work um, is uh, evolving, I suppose. Um, look, I think I think the generational shift is there. Um, and I think that's for people growing up in a world where that threat is just more, you know, obvious and apparent. And also perhaps, you know, having a, a, you know, a big risk in the long term, but less risk in short term, you know, investments where a lot of maybe older generations kind of have incentives to stick with the way things are because, you know, kind of that's how they know the world, but it's also where their wealth sits. But I also just a little bit uneasy about making some binary distinctions. And I mean, I, I do think, you know, the dynamics of change are just, it's are really subtle and far more complex than that. Um, the one thing I would say that I think is quite a big mindset shift though, and going into like, how is capital showing up for regenerative purposes? And that's rather than just taking an investment lens to go, where can we allocate capital to support good things in the world to more kind of transformational initiatives, which have a financing component within them. So I think that sense of like, you know, not seeing finance as separate, but actually being a kind of energy pool within a broader sort of, you know, cooperation or, or, or innovation um, system is where I'm starting to see some of the interesting distinctions. Yeah, because I, I guess the the investment itself isn't the isn't the end, is it? Like it's just a it's a vehicle, it's an enabler for producing these you know these other net benefits and so on. Um, Jackson, I'd love to come to you and, and explore this also. Where um, and curious to hear your thoughts. Mindful that you've you know you you've been um, a lot of your work has been grounded in Aotearoa, and then you've gone across to New York and and getting a different context there. I know that's that's influencing your the way that you're seeing things. But how are you seeing? Uh, I guess these trends evolve. What are the differences between Aotearoa, Australia, and New York? Um, and are there any, you know, generational aspects to what you're seeing uh, as well? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and I completely agree with the things Alex has shared already. I would emphasize to the generational point that the, the aspect around people and the role that people are having in all of this from our, our purchasing decisions to the, the way we run our businesses as a director, for example. Um, and what I think is that people's values are shifting as, as a human race, our values are shifting where, you know, 50 years ago, it was, it was a value to an extent to, to search for growth because that brought pros prosperity, et cetera. And now we're starting to understand things differently and, and value sustainability, et cetera, because we're more conscious of the environmental challenges that's happening across generations. I think it's accelerated at the, with younger generations and we're seeing that, but absolutely all stakeholders that is shifting. And so what that means is we're all um, prioritizing different things in our purchasing and, and where we work and that sort of thing. And that also means the types of businesses that are going to be profitable and, and a good investment, if you like, are the more sustainable businesses because they're going to be better supported, et cetera, in the long run. They're also ran by people who have generally a more, a, a different appreciation for sustainability too. Uh, and I think that's starting, that's one of the key levers in creating this shift is that, you know, whilst individuals can't solve this, I do think we're often overlooked at the role that we have in being part of the solution because we are kind of steering the, the, the economy, if you like, to be more sustainable. Uh, and I think that's a big part of what's creating the sustainability trend and that more money is going to these businesses because it's a really good, um, you know, investment opportunity uh, financially in, in terms of the finance side of things, but also from a sustainability perspective. Um, in terms of the distinction between New Zealand and, and New York, one of the main things I'm seeing here is the acceptance of, of impact investing, of ESG, that sort of thing. New Zealand, we're, we're still, you know, a, a while ago, we're a decade behind. I like to think we're catching up, but we're still a little bit behind in that a lot of the conversations are, you know, what is this impact investing? How do you do it? Should we be doing, you know, should we be thinking about sustainable or regenerative approaches? There's still some real hesitancy there. Whereas in the US, it's expected to, to be an option at least. And increasingly, uh, it is becoming, you know, the, the preferred option. 
I'll then distinguish that again to the to Europe though, because Europe we're seeing that, that it really is a step up again, and it's you know com completely accepted. It's it's almost expected that there will be sustainable options out there, and people are, are often leading with those. So there's definitely some differences around the world. Yeah, great. Look forward to seeing how that evolves um, further in the conversation. So I guess if we try and pinpoint a couple of examples that represent you know, innovative approaches to impact investment and, and perhaps more specifically, if you can think of any that relate to nature investment, but we don't have to be, be bound by that, but curious to see if there are. Um, Alex, coming, coming back to you, I think you talked about this thing of where you've got transformational processes and investment is enabling those. I don't know if there's one in particular that comes to your mind. Uh, yeah, so... Um... And I'll start, you know, like sort of Jackson sort of mentioned like a value shift. I, I also think there's sort of like some really important mindset shifts as well. And with nature, sort of maybe going from a conservation lens to, um, and I, I say this a bit lightly because I don't want to center humans, but thinking about nature as infrastructure and sort of a greater appreciation of the inherent importance of, you know, the, the the environment that we live on you know sort of being healthy and you know um benign for the way that we want to build our, our our societies so i think once we start to frame like you know nature as uh, an infrastructure that suddenly sort of changes the perspective of how we invest in infrastructure right you think about the money that goes into roads and drains and you know electricity grids if we started to shift that kind of quantum towards you know kind of an impact agenda and a regeneration agenda then we're in a fundamentally different paradigm one one example that i really like and it's an example of like um con conceived as a systems transition which then has finance plays a key role and it's something called um trees as infrastructure and it's a kind of cooperation uh, initiative between dark matter labs um uh, google um a number of sort of you know, sort of technology companies, but also sort of um, public sector as well. So one of the pilots is in Glasgow City. And what they're basically saying is that this city to work well needs a far more enriched and enhanced natural habitat. And technology now is enabling us to trace the enhancement of habitat and link that to market mechanisms. So um, they've sort of created uh, effectively um, sort of a, a bond facility to raise investment, which will then resource um, a range of different sort of activities and innovation um, sort of projects within that locality. But what I really love within it is a lot of the sort of, you know, sort of planting of trees, like plant, you can plant trees relatively easy. It's maintaining them for 10 years, which is the problem. So they're thinking like, if we are going to sort of basically create resource um, and market arrangements for a whole heap of, you know, kind of habitat improvement, how do we make sure we actually have a workforce which also maintains that? And as I understand it, the city government is effectively creating a digital token, which they will underwrite. So this token can be used to pay taxes and they will basically supply this token to people who engage in stewardship. And so basically by um, saying we're accepting this in um, taxes, it's enabling a load of people to get resourced uh, for work that they want to do. And then they can use that credit with local businesses because local businesses also have to pay their taxes. And effectively they put into circulation a whole of value, which is aligned with stewardship activity to enhance projects which then can be invested in from traditional capital arrangements. And so what I really love about that is its systems ambition and scope and how you've got multiple actors figuring out how do we do the plumbing on this, which aligns value, incentives and labour and, of course, technology. And more broadly, and I, I won't go on for too much longer, but I have been blown away which is what's happening around uh, regenerative finance or refi. And it, there seems to be there's so much noise around crypto and a lot of it is, you know, Bitcoin and tech bros and Ponzi schemes. But there's something else going on there, which is like this is new societal infrastructure and technologies which basically combine um, information flows, value flows and governance are going to be really, really useful in systems transformation initiatives. So things like I'm not sure if you come across Klima DAO, who basically have 
disintermediated kind of offsetting um, to make it a lot cheaper and allowing small-scale landholders to generate livelihoods or incomes through the production of carbon credits. But they've also generated a reserve currency backed by carbon. And it only started just over a year ago. And I mean, still relatively small scale, but you know, sort of by people buying the Klima token, um, which is underpinned by a ton of carbon, one Klima, one ton of carbon, they've basically um, uh, uh, locked in more than 17 million tons of carbon into their treasury as a kind of wild initiative in one year. You know, so the whole idea that we're not just going to start to see investments which enable regeneration, but we might actually shift our money system to be underpinned by, you know, natural habitat, I think is really edgy and really exciting. And it's actually working at a level of scale, which is which is pretty impressive already. Brilliant. I love I love my my mind's trying to kind of bend to accommodate these new thoughts and ways of thinking. I'm sure our listeners will be in it in some of the same boat, but it it just it feels like it is it is disruptive. It, it is very interesting. But I, I love also when you kind of break it down that some couple of those distinctions where you're talking about that establishment, you know, it's not hard to plant a tree, but as you say, to then manage its growth and support rangers or other people to look after it, that that's, you know, that's a challenge and that's why we need that ongoing um, legacy. Okay, so let's, let's lean into this further. Jackson, I'm sure you've got some brilliant examples also. What's one that really sticks out to you? Um, I'll start with it. Uh, Alex, it's an exceptional example, but because it was so exceptional, I'm going to start with a very simple one, um, which is just an organisation in New Zealand that is doing exceptional work, I think, called Carbon Crop. Uh, and what they have done is they've created artificial intelligence backed technology, which makes it super easy for any landholders with some trees on their land to be able to map the, that forestry block and submit it to a carbon credit scheme, whether that's through the ETS in New Zealand or a voluntary product. Um, and what's what's really impressive here is that just how easy they make it. So they can map very relatively small sections of forestry, do it virtually instantly, and be able to tell you how much value through carbon credits, carbon sequestration could be generated from that forestry block. Uh, and I think that's that's you know one part of the game changer in this industry for for forestry blocks and for farmers in New Zealand who know that these trees that they have have inherent value and are part of solving the problem. But without solutions like that, it's just so complex to have any hope of getting kind of carbon credits and value from that. So it's just a, a very simple example uh, that is is making will make a big impact around the world, hopefully, if they can scale it. Um, I can share a slightly a, a slightly more complex example, but really impressive, I think, and it's actually from here in the US and, and the, the, the Biden administration and some legislation they've released recently uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act. And that title is a bit misleading because it makes it sound like it's about inflation and long-term it absolutely is. But the way the main lever they've, they've used in this act to reduce inflation in the long-term is actually subsidies for renewable, renewable energy and broader sustainability projects. And importantly, this is the government effectively stepping in to say, the private sector, we know you're exceptional, we know you're where the innovation comes from, and we know you're going to be part of the lead of solving these challenges. And we want to help you get the finance you need to get to be able to do that and create that innovation and scale that. So they have said, right, for the areas that we need to make progress in, whether that's renewable um, electric vehicles, renewable energy, newer things like uh, carbon capture and carbon storage, et cetera, all of these areas which are talked about as part of a solution but still need some scale, the Inflation Reduction Act has said, right, we'll give you a, a certain size subsidy through a tax credit, which makes it a financially viable or profitable investment opportunity for the private sector. So we're seeing the private sector put a whole lot more money into these areas, which really need it if we're going to reach our, our 2050 goals, et cetera. So I thought um, it's a pretty it's a pretty exceptional piece of legislation for the, the breadth that it goes across, the, the thought that's gone into sizing the subsidies to make it actually palatable for the private sector, and the fact that it really enables the private sector to lead what it does best in coming up with these innovations and hopefully scaling them over time. Mm. Uh, Jackson, I want to want to stick with you for a, a moment. One of the things in the in the lead up to this conversation that um, I guess struck Claire and I was a comment that you made that 
uh, a lot of the focus, and, I, and I'm kind of, I know I'm shaking up the conversation a little bit here, but I, I'll go on that tangent for a moment and then come back. But um, you, you mentioned that there's all of this focus on investment that has perhaps the risk of becoming a distraction for those uh, from those who are really making the changes or, or, or getting some of the work done. Um, what did you mean by that? What, 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 what are you seeing and how are your own attitude shifting or, and, and sometimes these are emergent feelings, but just what, what are those things that you're sensing into when you, when you, when you call that out? Yeah, I'll try not to get myself in trouble here, but I guess a proviso to what I say is absolutely, you know, the example that Alex did, for example, is, is exceptional and we need more of that type of thing happening. But as I think we can all grasp, it's really complex, right? There's a number of different stakeholders in there and even the thinking alone to pull it together is complex and that makes it harder to do at, at scale and on a regular basis, right? Um, what I was quite surprised to learn through my studies over here recently is just the amount of spend that corporate businesses are putting into a, a lower carbon economy to transition their businesses to be lower carbon. Um, that spend is already in the league of, of $100 plus trillion each year. And when we think about the amount of money we need to transition to, to you know, net zero 2050, et cetera, some of those estimates are 250 trillion. So you can say that the corporate sector is already spending half, is half of the amount that is needed to get to net zero. And there's also forecast, it's also expected that the corporate sector is going to make another $200 trillion in profits, you know, across that time. So basically, when you do the math, the corporate sector is already doing half of the work to get to net zero from a financial perspective, um, half of the spend. And there's budget there if they were to use all their profits to complete the work. I appreciate this is all very theoretical and not that 100% likely by any means, but the, the logic flows, right? And so what I, I took that information and stepped back and said, right, I've always been in this impact investing bubble. I've always thought impact investing is the solution. And the only way we're going to get to 2050 is for us all to do impact investing. And then again, step from that step back, the, the Global Impact Investing Network just a couple of weeks ago released a market analysis that says the size of the impact investing net, uh, market last year was $1 trillion. So we compare that $1 trillion with the $250 trillion. And that's where I start to say, okay, these, this isn't stacking up. That's not to say impact investing isn't important. It is. It needs to keep growing. It will, it will create solutions that other investing simply can't. But the proportion of the solution that it's going to play uh, has reduced a little bit for me as I've started to think a bit differently about the, the power that businesses have, the changes they're already making, and inevitably, back to some points from earlier on, the changes they're going to have to continue to make to continue to be sustainable and profitable. Yeah, I love love how, um, and just appreciate uh, your candidness uh, there and openness to share, Jackson. It's something that we do um, really, I guess, try and create space for that unapologetic, unapologetically bold thought, which sometimes is forming and, and, and yeah, I, I guess it's, it's just good to, to challenge some of these ideas while we're right in the depths of this conversation. Um, uh, we're going to kind of try and trace uh, back our, our path for a moment uh, here. There seems to be something around the place connection to this work. Um, and I'm, I'm going to use a really um, overly simple and, and maybe naive uh, bridge, but like when people think of finance, they're probably thinking of Swiss banks and, and, and this particular zone um, in the world. But um, we've also been talking about, you know, crypto and, and other, you know, new, um, uh, I guess, currencies and different ways of moving things around. Alex, in your work, where are you seeing these hubs, these regions, knowing that we are operating in a very increasingly digital world, but still geographically, like where are you seeing the, the kind of Switzerland of these impact investment um, uh, innovations being? Like are there particular places, maybe a couple, two or three that you can point to and saying there's some interesting things happening here and here, um, whether that's in a neighbourhood or whether that's a whole city or a whole country? Um, look, I, I do think literally it's happening everywhere, you know, like when you when you look for it, you know, context matters, but we are seeing this kind of emergence, um, you know, again, go back to Jackson's thing around emergence of new values, I was 
new mindsets. I do think there's a sense of we are starting to become more aware of the interconnected nature of things. And clearly many indigenous peoples, you know, have always, you know, sort of understood that and it's influenced, you know, kind of cultural ways of being and ways of doing for, for many thousands and thousands of years. But I think there's an awakening you know, kind of um, in the modern world around the interconnected nature of things. And I think your point about place being important is because it makes systems tangible. So I think cities are becoming really kind of hotspots of innovation because they've got resources, they've got lots of people, and um, it's also often where sort of multi-dimensional cracks show up. So it's really easy to start to sort of link economy to society to built environment, you know, um, and and maybe also kind of the level of government is a, a, a level where, you know, it still has its job to do and it's still kind of, you know, constrained in many ways, but potentially um, has an ability to be more innovative, you know, than say, you know, kind of a centralized government department, which kind of sees the world almost through an abstract <laughs> rather than like, this is our city and we're part of it and we have a responsibility for its future prosperity and well-being. So I think places as a way to start experimenting with more sort of um, systemic view of the world and a, a systemic way of working are really important. I also wanted to sort of link back, Matt, just to something that sort of Jackson was saying about like, you know, the disparity almost between this amount of impact investment, this is the rest of the world. And for me, this highlights what is the purpose of that small amount. And it's not to do all the heavy lifting. Going back to the bell curve, it is to be on the bleeding edge. And so that's really important that it, it, it sees itself as highly experimental rather than just trying to do the same as conventional finance, but get impact as well. And I think one of the problems, and there's a bit of a category confusion between commercial finance and impact finance, for me, it's it's not so much that, it's just like the private interest of finance often. Now in commercial finance, that's clear and we just see it, but with philanthropic finance, sometimes I think we anticipate that it would be far more available to the common interest than it actually is. It's still privately owned and it still represents the preferences and interests of those wealth holders, regardless of whether it seeks a financial return or not. And one of the things that we spoke about um, recently in this sort of systems capital report was if we want more systemic initiatives to be supported or kind of, you know, um, we need to find pools of capital which are able to be distributed, you know, basically by the system for the system, <laughs> you know, rather than just a kind of confetti of individual preferences and interests. So I wanted to layer that on that it's not just the impact in the commercial, it's also the private and the commons. And it's not like one is better than the others. They can be complementary, but I don't think, you know, we've had public finance, we have private finance, but we haven't had this kind of systems capital or commons capital, which I think would be really complementary to those, to those other two sources. Mm. And, and perhaps when you're talking about commons and this the links to place here, what comes up for me is that ecosystems are connected to place. Like if we talk about a water catchment, for instance, you know, the, the, the Birrarung being connected to um, the Nurn Port Phillip Bay catchment. One of the projects we're involved in is working towards a swimmer wall Birrarung Yarra River by 2030. Um, and my mind's already ticking over of like how, how do businesses and how do the, the people that are involved with the, the regeneration works on the ground, how do they talk to each other more? But uh, I think one of the things that I personally worry about is that when we talk about nature, we can turn it into an abstract and, and, and that um, one of the things that First Peoples knowledge, Maori and, and First Nations Australians and, and other Indigenous cultures around the world is that it is very specific to, to place. And so uh, I have uh, something that we kind of often confront in these conversations is that that Western mindset tends to abstract and generalize and universalize these conversations. Whereas it's almost as if we're floating above the earth and we don't actually feel the specific waterways or the specific lands, the specific forests that we're connected to. 
Um, so um, yeah, I'm just acknowledging this dance and, and creative tension. But yeah, feel free to jump jump back into that, Alex. I'm so pleased you brought the, the, this up because it, it came to mind earlier. That um, so, and it also relates to one of your previous episodes around governance. And I really, you know, when you were discussing like leaving a chair for, <laughs> you know. The, the planet or you know or, or groups who aren't in the room but need to be remembered um i think some really interesting governance innovations like things like in Aotearoa where you've got the Fonga Nui river basically being given personhood now if you start to sort of accept well okay so the river owns itself you know and then you start to layer on things like jackson was talking around like we now know that um natural assets can generate revenues from um, you know the way that our markets are emerging so then you kind of think like what happens if the Fonganui river starts to accumulate a lot of wealth how would that river seek to reinvest that wealth and presumably it would have an interest in its the habitat in order to sustain its own health so i think there's some really interesting sort of um not just thought experiments but shifts in finance governance landscapes markets paradigms mindsets values where we, we might actually start to see something which is hard to imagine now, but you know, um, us starting to more comfortably sit in stewardship roles and respecting that specific landscapes have autonomy. And if they are generating wealth from our kind of conventional you know, economies, they will have, should have agency in how they would then seek to reinvest that. And it's probably they'll choose to reinvest in things other than what we as humans might do. So I, I love those ideas that this, again, you know, sort of a bundle of things are shifting, which I think will take us to some fundamentally quite different spaces. Yeah, and, and I guess when we talk about mindsets and different places or, or ways that we can, you know, be in the world, um, it highlights one of the elders that we do a lot of work with, Nawi, uh, Carolyn Briggs, she often talks about that culture is fluid, it, it's evolving. And, and I think that's a positive thing. Like in listening to you, Jackson, and your way that your ideas are evolving, the places, examples, um, it, it is organic. And I think leaning into that, we've been, we're in a time of disruption, we've had that, and then allowing space for that culture and evolution. Um, it feels encouraging, but I do want to ground it in this moment because we we do always encourage, I like this kind of so what moment specifically for businesses. Um, so I'm just going to put it um, to you initially, Jackson, if you are thinking of a specific business, could be a corporate, could be a, a startup, um, or on the other hand, there could be actors that are involved directly with ecosystem restoration and regeneration works. Um, what would be your one tool or tip on how they can become active in this progression of impact investment, let's say? Yeah, yeah, the silver bullet, right? What is that? Um, I think one thing that I certainly think is, is increasingly obvious is that ESG and those frameworks that these large organizations are using out of, for various reasons, including kind of compliance regulatory reasons, to better understand their organization. These are really good and it's certainly a step in the right direction, but they're so comprehensive that it kind of means it's just, it, there's, no, there's no clear focus within that, right? It's just, this is the breadth of the things that we do and the, the potential materiality that may have on our business, but that doesn't create kind of a guiding light for impact or change or even the purpose that that organization has. The one thing I'm, 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 I'm starting to see whispers of this, and I hope more organizations are able to do it, is to continue the comprehensive ESG, because that's necessary, but also start trying to find some focus within that. You know, what is the, the mission or the purpose of the organization? And what are the handful of digestible indicators or metrics that you can use to understand and reflect that, that purpose and mission? And ideally even set targets and create that plan of how you're going to increase that over time. And I think through that, we'll start to see a transition of corporates, you know, saying that they're, they're not terrible for the world at least, to be able to say, oh, actually, this is our focus. We're looking to achieve this in the world. And these are the five ways that we do that, for example. 
it, it's a relatively small thing, but I think it would significantly change the conversations and the way that organization thinks and, and therefore the strategy of that organization and how they can say, right, this is how we're going to maximize these five levers, for example, rather than just the breadth of data that they currently have in front of them. Yeah, and it does force that kind of like what's our unique contribution type conversation as well, exactly. rather than just the, the, the blanket. Um, Patagonia is coming to my mind with the recent announcements, uh, of course, um, but I, I don't want to steer you there um, unnaturally. Alex, what, what's one example, just a practical tip or tool that grassroots startup or a grassroots environmental organisation um, might think about in 2023 as we start to steer towards um, this new year? Um, so, I mean, the, the, the B-Lab kind of, you know, business impact assessment, I think is really enabling for small organisations who don't necessarily have the internal capability or knowledge to think about how might we work better over a number of different aspects, be it engagement community, environmental impact, nature of products and services, governance, how we work with our employees. So I think that's a really practical tool, which is freely available that any organisation can can get the benefit of. Um, I think for bigger organizations, I, I mean, without going into another sort of, you know, big one, it's just like the abstraction of corporations from people and place is a kind of really problematic. And, um, and I think that's not just corporations, it's any big institution. So one of the things that we've been trying to do internally at Griffith is kind of start a conversation and say, okay, you're a university, you may just see yourself primarily as research and learning and teaching, but also you buy more than, you know, kind of God knows how many millions of dollars of products and services every year. You have a balance sheet, which is probably, you know, kind of around about a billion dollars. You've got five different sites. You've got all these networks and different influence. How do you use all your levers towards your purpose? And I think bigger organizations, rather than just sort of doing the tick box, you know, kind of in terms of like seeing it, you know, kind of more narrowly in strategy, it's just like, holistically how do we actually contribute to the well-being you know kind of of pe uh, people planet uh, and the places that we're operating within the last thing i'd say matt and this is actually inspired by a piece of work that um, my colleague ingrid burkett um just put out this week uh, on repatterning. and when i read it what really came out for me was the fractal nature of change and so there's no point talking about the trillions and the billions and the big leaders unless we're actually starting to, you know, sort of remodel the patterns of the way that we are and interact with each other at a micro level, you know, otherwise you get a dissonance <laughs> and it won't and it won't stick. So I think particularly for small organizations, really thinking around like what kind of organization do we want to be? How do we want to spend our time together? You know, um, you know, and sort of challenging some of the kind of conventional ideas of what a business does and looks like and operates. I think, you know, while you're small, you have a huge amount of creativity to sort of create enabling spaces, which kind of, I don't know, resonate on a number of levels, but certainly aren't, you know, have a big, bold purpose, but then acting badly to each other on a day-by-day -day basis. So I think that fractal nature of things is really important and culture, it, you know, is an incredibly important part of that. Yeah, thank you both so much. We've, we have properly gone on a journey uh, today and just to, I guess, um, add a couple of little, I guess I'm just trying to bridge the regen projects work on the from the back of house perspective. We're talking um, with some colleagues about what does you know bioregional governance or bioregional equity. What does that look like for us? You know how when Corinne Traeger, the CEO of the Aruba Keeper Association, recently ran the whole length of the Birrarung from source to sea. She made the scale of this 200 kilometer journey human. Um, and then we look at examples like you know, Patagonia and the, the fund there. And I guess it does it, it makes you ask, like, what's our what's our contribution? So I, I really appreciate what you've each been able to put out there. So um Claire, as it as it happens, seems to be grappling with some construction works in our house. So I, I've got the job of, of wrapping this up as well. So um, just to give you uh, as listeners context there, but she's provided me with some beautiful notes. So I'm going to try and um, relay them as, uh, uh, I guess, succinctly as possible. So 
but we've gone on this journey and we've we've been talking about changing uh the whole system and noticing the interconnected nature of all of those moving parts different parts of markets and different roles of different actors um the modern western world seems to be in a wake-up moment um seems to be that if we were sitting around a fire circle my image that comes to mind is that the elders have been sitting down there for a long while and then someone comes with a big backpack and it's like yeah we've been waiting you know so um it, it, but it's you know that, that's nice and i think there are those kinds of real interactions uh, happening um places are the way to explore a systemic view of the world and and making it like for us it's it's the birrung like it's it's nam philip bay it's western port bay these are the things we're connected to it's the whales the humpback whales that migrate along the east coast and head closer up towards your part of the world alex um, these are, you know, it, it forces us to really to connect and think in these different ways. Trends, longer term mindset, for sure, understanding risks and the, the impact uh, of investments and I guess changes in spending behavior. Defining value differently is coming up and the different tools and framings that we can use around that. The idea of the conservation uh, lens that shift towards ecosystem services, uh, I guess, eco ecological infrastructure, the way you put it there, Alex, and, and amazing examples of, of the Wanganui River and the Iwi and Aotearoa that are really leading that example of personhood and legal recognition of, of ecosystems. So I, I guess just a couple of thoughts to add to that, you know, shaking up thinking that this idea of the amount of money flowing around the, in the impact investment market is small fraction of the money being thrown around in the corporate sector. Um, and how do we navigate those tensions? What are the idea of the, the icebreakers or the, all those nitrogen fixes to pave the way for those bigger volumes? Um, and how does the impact uh, investing market position itself in this bigger story? Um, you know, where it's not, it's maybe helping to shift, but it's not doing the heavy lifting. So I hope I've been able to, to, to capture as much of that we have covered at a tremendous uh, um, amount, but it is true to um, the spirit of um, the Voices of Regen podcast, as we do like to keep it unapologetically bold. I'm going to go off script here for a moment. Jackson, you're in New York. You've gone, you've, you know, you've had this breakout moment from Aotearoa. Um, just in like one minute, what's this next step for you? What does the next six to 12 months look like? Yeah, um, if all goes to plan, it's definitely coming back to New Zealand. Uh, and, you know, being here has only confirmed to me the potential that finance has to, to play a significant role in accelerating the solution to so many of the challenges. Naturally, it's complex and there's lots of things we need to be conscious of in doing so, but finance needs to play a key role. Business also needs to play a key role. So I want to find ways to, to combine those two in the most regenerative way possible uh, to, to accelerate the change, the, the improvement to the world that they can collectively make. Brilliant. Super, super exciting. Well, perhaps when you're, you're back or you're close to this part of the world, we can, the four of us can catch up for a, a bushwalk or something. We can muse over these around a fire or, or perhaps join some elders as we do around the fire circle so often. But Alex and Jackson, thank you so much. And Claire, also shout out to you, you know, and the construction workers that are doing that infrastructure work in the background. <laughs> I'll jump in briefly in between drilling episodes. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Al um, Alex and Jackson. It's been brilliant um, to hear you share all of your wisdom and um, cool thoughts. So thanks so much. Alrighty, folks, we'll wrap it up there. And uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of this Market Conditions for Impact series as part of the Voices for Regen podcast. I look forward to seeing you in our next episodes as well. All the best.